This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. So in this installment of the LBJ Resiliency Podcast, we're exploring the impact of COVID on vulnerable populations. Joining us for this today's conversation is immigration policy expert Ruth Wasserman. Professor Wasserman, welcome. Glad to be here. And uh, Michelle Deitch, professor at the LBJ School and the UT Law School, a criminal justice expert. Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. So I want to start with immigration. So Ruth, we'll start with you. Um, In what ways has COVID altered uh, the U.S. immigration policies? Well, it's altered it in several ways. Uh, First off, there are travel restrictions. So uh, anyone who has traveled in China, Iran, um, the EU countries, United Kingdom, uh, Brazil and South Africa, for example, um, are barred from coming to the United States unless there are, uh, there are exceptions for U.S. citizens and, and others. But generally speaking, it has curtailed travel to the United States. But um, what I find particularly uh, significant is um, the way COVID has impacted our view of immigrants who work in essential jobs. And those are jobs deemed essential by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, critical infrastructure jobs where they were expected to keep working through this COVID pandemic. And, and, and one of the things that a lot of folks are saying, well, is how are we supporting our immigrants in those jobs? If, if the expectation is that they're gonna continue to work those jobs, you know, are we doing enough to support those immigrants? Um, should we be doing more? Well, um, they are much more likely than than U.S. born people to work in critical infrastructure, and um, they are overwhelmingly in two sectors: uh, the healthcare industry and the food supply chain. And where the the difficulty comes in is um, they're also Uh, most likely to be unauthorized uh, immigrant workers. So um, a population that would otherwise uh, have been quite vulnerable to uh, removal, deportation from the country, are actually performing uh, critical jobs uh, essential for us to uh, conduct um, our our lives uh, during uh, the uh, pandemic. Um, and so they they have become a particular focal point because in the early uh, legislation, the first wave of the CARES Act, um, if any member of a, uh, of a household was an unauthorized uh, resident, that household was barred from receiving a, a check. Um, uh, now, that was not true in the second round of aid, but um, the... Um, And the other aspect that makes it particularly difficult for immigrant populations is that they are less likely uh, to have access to health care. So they're a particularly vulnerable population in that they are in jobs that are essential, that they be out and about and working, and yet they're less likely to have access to health care. Yeah, on an earlier podcast, we spoke with uh, uh, Professor Michael Hull, um, LBJ's school, school professor and also at UT Medical School, Dell Medical School, and we were talking about this question about 
of, of providing better protections from some of our most vulnerable populations. And he illustrated the same point is that many of our immigrants are out on the front lines, but maybe not be getting the support that's needed to sort of think about how we can support them um, going forward. Michelle, I, I want to move to to um, our correction system uh, here, and, and you're you're one of the world uh, one of the country's leading experts, really, on this. And and so you've done a lot of uh, interviews and, and discussion points about the impact of COVID. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about why prisons and jails are maybe because of this pandemic, kind of failing to to uh, satisfy their public safety mission, perhaps. Um, I think that's exactly the way to to frame it, Stephen, um, they are failing at their most fundamental public safety task because they're not keeping people safe. Prisons and jails are petri dishes for the spread of the virus. And yet people who are incarcerated are getting infected and dying at unprecedented rates. Um, prisons and jails are some of the most uh, uh, troubling hotspots in the country right now. It's not only incarcerated people, it's also staff who are getting infected and dying at crazy uh, high rates. Um, we're seeing the virus spread into the nearby communities. So they're very porous institutions. Um, so we're not even keeping the areas around the prisons and jails safe. Beyond that, the uh, restrictions due to the uh, to COVID have led to the suspension of visitation programs and rehabilitative programs in many cases. And that means that people are far less likely to um, have a successful reentry. We're going to see higher recidivism rates as a result. Not to mention that all the isolation, the lockdowns inside, are leading to a lot of tension and potential violence. So a lot of the wraparound services that sometimes we would think that we'd be present in our correction systems are unfortunately absent during this period. And you sort of see that there's a potential impact here for that as we look to the future. Absolutely. Although I think it's generous to think that there's any kind of wraparound services going on in our prisons and jails. Sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, education, those types of things, perhaps. Um, so what would be some suggested recommendations that you'd have to say if we were looking to the future that we could we could sort of right this ship? Are there things that we could do in the short term? We'll talk about long term, but in the short term to ensure that we're able to um, to really move on our public safety agenda and our correction system. Well, one of the things that every expert has said is that we have got to be depopulating our facilities. Um, we've, they're very densely populated spaces, it, and people can't socially distance. So we have to reduce the populations of prisons and jails. Um, one of the big lessons here is that we are locking up far too many people for far too long. And these punitive policies are standing in the way of much more appropriate, thoughtful, and cost-effective measures that can save lives. We also have to be doing a lot more to get um, uh, hygiene and, and cleaning supplies and PPE in the hands of the people who need them. Um, and we need to be figuring out ways that we can prevent the spread of the virus within uh, prisons and jails without further harming people inside by restricting all of their movement and activities. Right. So one of the, the solutions that a lot of folks are saying, well, just restrict, restrict, restrict. And what what a lot of advocates like you're saying is yourself is saying is that's going to have really long term detrimental um, effect on many of uh, many of the uh, folks that are in those facilities. In so many ways, not to mention one one thing that's not being talked about much is the mental health impact of a lot of those restrictions. 
Yeah, for sure. So Ruth, um, you and your students have done a lot on looking about how cities can better support immigrants. Um, um, not particularly related to COVID, but just generally speaking um, about sort of ensuring that immigrants are assimilated uh, better in communities. Are there lessons learned from some of the research that you've done with your students that you would suggest that we could point to two or three ideas for how we can better support immigrant populations now within the age of COVID, knowing that, as you suggested earlier, many of these uh, uh, residents are on the front line? Well, one of the things that um, that we've learned, and we've been doing work, um, we did a big report that came out last summer uh, on immigrant incorporation in the city of Dallas, and uh, we're doing work now with the city of San Antonio and the city of Austin, looking at um, the extent to which um, these cities are welcoming communities and, and comparing them with um, cities that are are uh, statistically similar to them on, on demographic and economic traits. And um, we have found some best practices, particularly um, uh, in terms of COVID, because um, that is an area that cities realize uh, that they need to do extra outreach uh, to uh, immigrant populations to make sure that they're um, um, uh, getting um, access to what they need uh, for the public health consequences of COVID. Um, so we are finding that some cities are, are, are being more aggressive on this or have developed uh, better techniques and networks uh, to make sure that immigrants are included in uh, the COVID um, uh, pandemic uh, uh, service providing. Um, and but on a broader level, we are finding that in areas where um, you incorporate immigrants fully into the community, you usually do that. The areas where the, you need it most is um, is in job creation um, and immigrants really fuel economic growth. And so um, that and they go in and they repopulate um, uh, emptying neighborhoods uh, reopen storefront businesses, and um, and are critical in starting new businesses. We, and and of course, immigrants have considerable uh, um, power, spending power as consumers. So uh, there's no question that um, immigration um, revitalizes urban areas, and the kinds of policies a city would do um, that helps immigrants actually helps everybody. Uh, it's it, it's it's not that you really need to target um, uh, specific populations as much as just good policies about job creation and economic growth. Uh, all boats uh, rise when you do that. So, Ruth, is there a, is there a city uh, across the country that you would point to as a best practice or an example that's having real success in this area? Um, it really hinges on what criteria you're taking a look at, because a lot of the cities have um, um, one of the thing. Th this is going to get into the weeds, so I, I don't want to go there. But a lot of it hinges on, on what you're looking at and how you calculate it. So sometimes cities that have experienced the most economic decline in recent years are uh doing the they're the most aggressive and assertive at, at doing the kinds of of um, uh, innovation and job creation uh, that help immigrants as well as other residents so their numbers um, they look <clears throat> uh, much higher even though um, it, they're starting uh, from a lower place 
so I'm uh, in some of our work. We we talk about the the it's all relative. It's all relative in, in how it plays out, and we look at a variety of different factors. Um, so um, there's uh, there's no one city that I would point to at this point. Yeah, that's great. No, I know that much of my work is booked at distressed urban areas, and we know that um, policies that are surrounding the support of immigrants are a great great way to start to revitalize neighborhoods. But you're right, there continues to be sort of mixed research on the impact that we start to see across the country. It's a measurement issue, really, Stephen, because a lot of it has to do in some cities, um, like you could look at Seattle and they have a wonderful set of services. You know, there's some Newark, New Jersey uh, has done a lot. uh, Philadelphia has done a lot. Um, We're, um, you know, taking a look at Atlanta um, as well as, you know, cities that are similar. And, And again, in Texas, we're looking at Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Austin. Uh, and and um, different cities have their strengths. Um, uh, so when you look, uh, um, a, uh, and it hinges on what the job opportunities are in that city and where the growth areas are. Yep. So Michelle, I want to talk, you know, same sort of vein of conversation really around best practices. Is there a state um, of, you know, facility perhaps that is doing uh, good work around um, around sort of helping to help their facilities adjust to the age of COVID? Is there any best practices that we could point to? Well, there are pockets of good things happening in lots of places, but um, the fact is that everywhere in the country has been hit really, really hard by COVID and its prisons and jails. But there are lessons that we've learned from this that really should guide us as we look to the future. Um, first, as I was mentioning before, we've got to get we have to reduce our prison and jail population. We incarcerate far too many people in this country. We can avoid a lot of that unnecessary incarceration, not only because of viruses, but also because the incarceration experience harms the people who are there. Um, It traumatizes them. People are coming out worse from their incarceration experience. So we need to get those numbers down. We also need to be looking at prison and jail through a public health lens. And we need to be investing in social safety nets in our communities so that we don't look to prisons and jails to fill the gap. We need to be looking at ways to improve conditions in prisons and jails. We can build in efforts at um, uh, enhancing wellness and teaching resiliency and reducing the harm that people are experiencing. We could be strengthening the relationships between people who are incarcerated and their family members so that they have uh, bonds and a community to go home to. We could be looking at ways to deliver more programs to people who are incarcerated and maybe using technology to help do that. And finally, we need to be looking at ways to enhance the transparency of our prisons and jails. They are among the most closed institutions in our society. We don't know what's going on behind the razor wire fences and the walls. And shining a light on what's going on inside is going to teach us all a lot more about um, how problematic those current conditions are and the ways that we can share best practices to uh, improve the conditions for both the people who live there and the people who work there. That's great. So I want to just sort of continue this conversation a bit and and look to the future and particularly with an eye towards um, our new uh, administration, the new Biden administration. And so Ruth, we'll start with you on immigration. Um, You know, how will the Biden administration's proposed changes to immigration and law 
um, you know, have impact on some of the challenges that you've outlined in this discussion? Well, they could have a substantial impact um, on um, on um, immigrant essential workers and all immigrants in the United States. Um, there's a lot he's doing by executive order, but that's essentially um, um, trying to mitigate um, the um, policies of the Trump administration and rolling back uh, some of the more uh, uh, extreme uh, uh, policies um, that the previous administration has. But one of the first pieces of legislation uh, he did it his first day in office that he sent to Congress was an overhaul of immigration that included a status adjustment for uh, close to 11 million um, foreign nationals in the United States out of status. Um, I like to point out that half of those uh, people are working as essential workers in the United States. Um, and so while um, uh, and, and one of the things that you've got to bear in mind about um, if we do proceed with um, a legalization program um, for these people who have been living and working in the United States, and, and they will go through background checks and things like that, a lot of the problems that have plagued immigrant, uh, immigration as a system, um, as well as um, the uh, community relations, pretty much disappear because when we think of all the problems that we've had with with uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, um, and the detention centers, and um, the uh, removals and deportations and family separation, when you neutralize and suddenly um, individuals uh, are no longer considered uh, and I, you know, I'm doing air quotes as illegals because that's a pejorative term. Um, but if they're fully incorporated into the uh, to the country where they've been living and working for years, um, then a lot of these enforcement problems go away. It also means that uh, because they will be able to to um, be open and active. Um, the barriers to community services and particularly uh, to health care, um, those will also fall away. Um, so um, they'll be able to, uh, to fully access everything our cities and communities have to offer. Um, and uh, again, most of them uh, uh, we know have been paying taxes for years. Um, and we, so we've been getting a lot of, of, of tax money um, from this population without providing them with anything. So there'll be a, uh, if this, if the law uh, uh, is enacted, um, there will be uh, um, a certain equilibrium we will reach and, and, and their prosperity and, and potential can be, can be more fully realized. But from a policymaker's point of view, um, I want to point out a dilemma. And that dilemma is there it would be broad support to allow essential workers um, to adjust their status. But what about the all the others? And this is the political tension that we face. Um, do we cherry pick and say, well, yes, essential workers, and leave other people behind? Or do we, and, and what the Biden administration has said, we're going to treat uh, treat them equally uh, and um, bring them into uh, full incorporation 
um, uh, in as lawful permanent residents of the United States. Uh, but it's it's not it's going to be a very heavy uh, legislative lift for such a bill to get through the Congress. That's what I was going to ask you, Ruth. What was the possibility of this getting through um, getting through the Congress and getting to the president's desk, actually? Well, you know, I was originally optimistic because um, immigration is a, um, something that is historically bipartisan. And in fact, I was in an earlier podcast a few weeks ago where I said there are two things uh, that Biden uh, cares about that um, are bipartisan and I think will happen. And that was infrastructure and immigration. Um, and I particularly thought that the visceral reaction so many people, all, almost every American had, um, to what uh, the siege in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th would cause people to, to turn the heat down and, and, and try to, uh, to um, retreat from the xenophobic and anti-immigrant rhetoric that we'd been, we've been hearing for the last few years. And working on a bipartisan immigration bill is a wonderful way to do that. Um, and there are people in both chambers, but particularly in the Senate, um, that have, have worked on bipartisan immigration proposals in the past. So um, the, um, the table is set, but um, the current political climate um, um, right now is not as optimistic as I had hoped it would be. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of folks are sort of echoing your sentiment too. And hopefully, hopefully though, there is a way to get to some sort of um, possible agreement and deal that can uh, through Congress that can get to the president's desk. Michelle, same question for you. Looking at our um, criminal justice system, you know, if you were advising the Biden administration on you know potential uh, proposed changes um, to the system and understanding that much of this is is, is state oriented as well, any thoughts or recommendations that you have building off of your earlier comments? Sure, um, and I think. The last point you made is exactly right. Um, yes, there are things that the Biden administration can and should be doing, but we have to remember that criminal justice is primarily a state and local issue. Um, our prisons are run by the states, with the exception of the federal system. Jails are typically run by local governments. And if we want to have a true impact on the system, we've got to be focusing on our state legislatures and local officials. Um, that said, the Biden administration can certainly be... Um, uh, uh, doing more than just signaling. It can use grant money to encourage the states to move in a certain direction. It can be directing them uh, to uh, implement certain policies. And, you know, mass incarceration didn't just spring up out of nowhere. Among other things, the federal government funded the states to build up its prison system. Um, and we could do a lot to reverse it in the same way. I'd also really like to see the uh, Biden administration encourage states to develop independent oversight bodies for prisons and jails to help uh, improve transparency and conditions in those facilities. That's great. Um, Michelle, uh, Ruth, thanks for joining us. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more where folks can find your work. Ruth, where can folks find more about your terrific work that you're doing at the LBJ School? Well, you can always go to the LBJ School website, uh, and there is a, a page um, with um, my um, what I'm up to in terms of research and writing and what my students are doing uh, under my bio. Uh, so that's probably the best uh, uh, single stop uh, to find out what I'm up to. That's great. And Michelle? 
Um, for me too, the uh, LBJ School website would be the best place to find me, but um, I am a new user of Twitter. And uh, if anyone wants to follow me there, it, my handle is M-Y-D-E-I-T-C-H. And um, you could also look for my new report on COVID and corrections, a profile of uh, COVID deaths in custody in Texas. And um, that came out in November and it has a lot of uh, really shocking statistics about what's happening on this front. Great. My friends, thanks for joining us for this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for the opportunity. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.